The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This is part two of my conversation with Errol Schweitzer, a 25-plus year veteran of the food system. If you haven't listened to part one of this conversation, please go back and check that out first before you listen to this episode. This half of our conversation is focused more on solutions, especially solutions that are missing from our current discussion about food systems change. Errol discusses business models, including worker ownership, alternative ownership structures, and a growing funding ecosystem, which is an alternative to venture capital. He talks about helping agroecological farming systems find markets for their products through plant-based brands. And he shares why people who are interested in fixing the food system have to get interested in policy. Other topics we cover include calculating the true cost of meat production, valuing labor, and breaking up the concentration of power in food, as well as the need to reform trade agreements, and a whole lot more. We also get into examples of plant-based companies that are doing the right thing when it comes to caring about supply chains and food sovereignty. Errol also brings up an important point that brands need to understand what consumers want, and you need to shape your products and marketing to fit those needs, instead of launching products with the intention of flipping the business to a big food company so you can cash out. Lastly, Errol shares why he believes big meat needs to be broken up and regulated, and why we need a new system to address the demand for meat. His big picture message on solutions is, you cannot overlay them on top of the existing system and expect something to change. I really hope you enjoy this episode. To maybe shift the conversation a bit, I'd love to... Maybe if you can share some examples of entrepreneurs or food co-ops or others who are doing it right. Like, what is the alternative? Because then, back to what I said right in the beginning, the context I provided, we're in 2021. For most estimates, by 2030, if we don't have some drastic changes, things are going to start to, they're already starting to rapidly uh, accelerate in terms of climate change and its effects. And that's going to keep getting worse with the decades ahead. By 2050, we're going to be, if we haven't done something, we're going to be in trouble. So if it's not this, and yes, no one product or one category of products can be the silver bullet to tackle all the issues and maybe not even climate change as an issue. Uh, no way and definitely will not tackle the issues with uh, uh, unfair labor practices and the inequities in our food system and the, the problems with 
the impact on the soil when you rely on commodity crops um, or the oceans, for that matter, when you when you rely on pesticides and runoff. It's not limited to animal agriculture. You can have all you can have many of those same effects even with plants if you don't create the products the right way. So if it's not that right, and if this if putting more and more money into alternative proteins as a category to grow more brands is not necessarily going to fix all of it. What alternatives do we have? And do you have some examples of companies or people who are, and, and, and maybe agroecology is that. I, I was talking to Pat Mooney on the podcast. He's He's been talking about this for years and said it's mostly, it's, it's small farmers or peasant farmers that grow food that feeds 70% of the world and the, it's big ag that feeds 30% yet destroys 70% of the world. So what is the alternative solution? Where should money be going? What actual tangible ideas do we have, given that we have this crazy time horizon we're dealing with, if, if, if the science is true? Of course. I mean, I, I've been writing and reading about climate change for 30 years. I did a paper about it when I was a sophomore in high school. So for me, it was open and closed. You know, and then I, I came to Whole Foods and moved to Austin and people down here didn't believe in climate change, including like executives at, at those companies that I worked at. I mean, it was just like ridiculous. So there's no, no, no question there. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think in terms of let's look at one thing. Let's look at business models. I do believe in worker ownership and employee ownership. And there's a thriving sector, uh, especially of companies, uh, enterprises started by you know, millennial and younger Gen X folks like myself, you know, 40s and under of, you know, worker ownership, right? So if you think, let's look at that, the, the, the business model, and there's, there's a growing funding uh, ecosystem for, for those types of businesses as well. So there's no reason why more plant-based companies can't also be worker-owned, employee-owned. Like, why should they just be steered towards kissing the ass of venture capital, Right. I mean, let, let, those two don't need to be mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Secondly, agroecology, um, like we need to be careful because it's not something that like fits in easily into a commodity food system. Like you can't, you know, put a price on it because it's not a certification. It's not a value add. It's a process. It's a social movement. On the other hand, growing products and helping products grown through agroecology find markets may be one way for uh, plant-based food companies to interact uh, with that ecosystem. There is a uh, professor down at UT Rio Grande Valley, Alex Rosellis, who's super cool, who I've met a couple of times, who does research on agroecological methods. Rio Grande Valley is very large producer of of food, particularly in the winter months. Um, You know, it's obviously right on the Mexican border, very large, you know, Mexican-American population, uh, very poor, very disenfranchised. You know, maybe there's ways to help folks down there find markets for their products, but also, you know, farm workers, like farm workers who are starting like their own enterprises, such as what Reinaldo Hazlet Marroquin is doing. Um, he was on my podcast, you know, and, you know, he is using chickens. Uh, you mainly raise chickens, but I'm sure there are other folks within that ecosystem that are going to do stuff that are, that are more plant-based, but he's using agroforestry, right? So if he's using, you know, tree crops, there'll be markets needed to g- generate revenue, generate income for the tree crops, right? Whether they're nuts or seeds or berries. So, now, let's be real here. There's ways to tap into that and to, to grow uh, that, that ecosystem, right? Um, and then, you know, I think finally, it's like, we have to let go of what, what I'm going to call neoliberalism, which is where you assume that you can't do anything through uh, the state, through the regulatory process. 
Um, and what that does is just surrenders the regulatory process to the other side, which is big meat companies. I mean, it's regulatory capture. And so those folks have been dictating, you know, what regulations we have, the big chemical companies, agro-pesticide companies. I mean, they dictate, big farming uh, interests dictate what USDA is doing. Let's be real here. And so if folks who are interested in actually fixing and saving the food system have to become activists too. You have to get interested in policy. You have to get interested in regulations. You have to get interested in public finance and how you move money around. Me personally, um, it's not so much the fact that these investors have all this money. It's like, why? You know, maybe that there should be a tax, uh, further tax on carried interest or on the way that they're raising money. Um, on the other hand, we need to look at, you know, the way, like I was saying earlier, meat costs are calculated or the costs of industrial agriculture is calculated, right? We need to look at how labor is valued in the food system, um, including in, you know, companies that are plant-based. You can't just say you're a plant-based company and then go around and bust unions and not pay your people a living wage, right? You know, to me, like, what's the point, right? You're just, you're, you're just keeping an evil system going. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some really interesting energy on the regulatory and activist side. I love what Sunrise Movement's doing, these, mm. these kids. Um, you know, I love the concept of a Green New Deal. I think it needs work. I think it's just, you know, getting going. It's not going away. Um, I'm very supportive of infrastructure and public spending for the common interest, you know, especially what those last set of clowns did in terms of, you know, giving, you know, the tax giveaways and like a 65 billion in ag subsidies to big conventional ag. So that, those are a, a few of the pillars that I would, I would suggest folks. And that's, doesn't have anything to do with you not being a entrepreneur or not being a you know, central, social enterprise leader or somebody who wants to create and innovate. I'm all for innovation, but it doesn't mean you, you can't surrender policy work. You can't surrender regulatory frameworks. You can't surrender social advocacy um, and say, oh, I just do that in my spare time. I'm keeping that separate. You know, and I also think it's a good business model to have. Just come into it from the get-go. Let folks know where you stand. You'll alienate some folks, but you'll also attract, a, I think, a more loyal group of customers. I mean, I know it's not plant-based, but look at Ben & Jerry's. Mm. Actually, they do have some coconut mm-hmm. milk ice cream. Look at, they just posted some more like, uh, you know, stuff around, you know, this, this, this kid who was killed by a cop in Minnesota mm-hmm. again. You know, it's like they keep killing black kids. And Ben & Jerry's keeps saying we need to uh, abolish the police. <laughs> it's like... Damn, Ben, damn, Jerry. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I mean, there's some people who are really pissed about it, but you know what? They're doing pretty well. Um, there's, there's a ton of loyalty around that type of activism. And they're sincere because they're actually funding some of the folks um, who, who are doing the work. And so I think this sort of social enterprise model, um, you know, I think it's really important if you care and if these things matter to you to uh, not separate that, to, to not silo that in your life and to be ready for a struggle. I mean, like I said, those of us who are lifers who are in it, you know, it's like, yeah, we're all hoping to make a bit of money here. You know, we're all, all selling our labor to survive, you know, but a lot of folks are getting more interested that I talk to about, you know, the broader social and economic issues around this. And what are these continuous hurdles that keep coming up with us fixing the food system that can't simply be resolved through the marketplace? And that, that's where the critique of the neoliberal framework comes in. Um, while I'm still not saying that, like, you can't be a, an entrepreneur or, you know, grow an enterprise, grow a business, have some fun, put your passions to work, go for it, do it. But also, you know, be realistic because not everybody is 
a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. And then how do you scale a, a, a food business, right? It, within this, this paradigm of, uh, of how the market works today, uh, what are the paths to, and, and maybe scale is the wrong word and maybe it's even the wrong approach. So what are your I, thoughts I on scale? We need yeah. scale. We need replicability and we need scale. I'm not one of these small as beautiful people. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm saying big as beautiful either. Big as necessary. But we need, we need a big agroecology fix. We need a, a worldwide understanding and execution of food sovereignty, right? And it should be democratically controlled um, by people, uh, not by big companies, not by the investors, not by the big banks, um, and not by the federal government. I think it needs to be you know, grassroots. And so to me, like we need big solutions, but we need to do it democratically and ethically and transparently. Um, and in a way that doesn't just replicate all the problems with the system now and say, oh, you know, you know, it's like the, the solution to, you know, big capitalism was, you know, state capitalism, what they're, you know, and, you know, Soviet Union and Russia uh, and, and China. And it's like, well, I don't know if that worked out too well for all people. You know, I mean, there's definitely some folks who are pretty <laughs> behind that, but there was a lot of split heads. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bloodshed. So I'm not saying that, you know, big plant-based capitalism, you know, is going to be as, as bad as that. But to me, there's a lot of red flags right now of how they treat workers, you know, what kind of food they're, they're growing, the lack of transparency and traceability of the ingredients, um, the capital and who's actually benefiting, you know, and you, you just look at when you look at Uber and you look at Instacart and DoorDash, mm-hmm. those guys came in and I say mostly guys because it's mostly guys. Um, they came in and said, we're going to extract 30% and Amazon, we're going to extract 30% here and just this wedge, this is ours now, <laughs> right? And so the customer pays eight to 10% and the supplier pays like 10 to 20%, right? And that 30% gets just sucked out of that industry. And that's an extractive model that Silicon Valley has come up with in order to create this quote, con- consumer sovereignty. Yeah, that's a consumer sovereignty, the consumer welfare, right? And what I'm saying is that's what, that, that's what they wanna do with plant-based. It's gonna, it's gonna work out for them. It's going to work out for a small group. And there's only going to be a couple winners in that. And all, all your, your listeners who are, you know, ethical, you know, optimistic, you know, energetic entrepreneurs, you know, not a lot of folks are going to be, be winners here, guys. So I don't think that's the model that we should be supporting and going for. I think we need to think very hard about alternates and work with folks who are working towards alternatives as opposed to just reifying these same frustrating mistakes um, and keeping, you know, all the, these same folks in power, um, you know, that are, are, are really just out for themselves and really making, um, really, really not going to improve the food system. And that, you know, to, to say, the, you know, the, it's really about GMOs, it's about concentration of wealth, it's about exploitation, and it's still reified white supremacy, white male supremacy, you know, all the above, <laughs> just, just, just follow the money folks. Yeah. Don't take my word for it. Um, Are you hopeful for companies like you? I mean, Unilever owns Ben and Jerry's now for, as an example, and many of the other, um, not necessarily the big meat companies, but I would say a lot of the other big, big consumer brand companies are starting to make a 
more concerted effort to think and talk about these issues and do better when it comes to uh, improving their supply chains. I don't know the details of how far they've gotten so far. Do you have hope in them actually? There's nobody on your podcast who spent more time with those folks than me. I'll just say that. Who spent more time with Dan Owen, who spent more time with Unilever, who spent more time with, I don't know, General Mills, Mm -hmm. um, Kellogg's, um, Mondelez, before that Kraft. I've spent thousands of hours with those folks. It's not about hope. It's about pressure. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that they either do the right thing or they go out of business. My role sitting across from them at Whole Foods was two-pronged, obviously to get good deals and create revenue, but hold them accountable to our quality standards and our sustainability standards and what our customers were expecting. At the time, that worked. Now I think that power locus needs to be for uh, food movements, consumer movements, um, to keep folks accountable. Um, whether they, they interact um, as um, shareholders, you know, shareholder proxies, or, or you know, they're holding demonstrations, or in mass through public contracts or other uh, you know, programs like Center for Good Food Purchasing, changing up the sourcing parameters, the sourcing metrics of how these folks you know, grow food. And some are responding better than others. Uh, you know, Dan Owen has, has made some, I would say, admirable changes, you know, and is at least posturing in the right direction. I can't say about the rest of Unilever. I, I you know, I don't really believe in this whole ESG model, like, I, you know, in the stakeholder capitalism mumbo jumbo. Um, you can't, you know, get in them in a room, they can't hold each other accountable. That's not how it works, folks. Somebody else needs to hold them accountable. And I, I think that needs to be done democratically. I do think we need a stricter regulatory process around, you know, how companies source product, how companies treat their people, um, how companies do business. And you know what? That means reforming some of our trade agreements, which like Trump trying to try to stumble around doing in terms mm-hmm. of his trade wars. Um, you know, they renegotiated NAFTA. You know, it's, it's kind of iffy, but there should be no reason why a company with a facility in the U.S. could close it and relocate to another country that pays their workers one-tenth what they were paying and doesn't have social or environmental standards, right? So we need to reform trade agreements. Sorry, folks, there I said it. And, you know, if you're working for a retailer, you know, you have a lot of leverage in that. Anybody with the power of the purchase order has leverage. And that's why what Coalition of Immokalee Workers, who we talked about, the tomato harvesters, they have um, legally binding contracts with growers that say, you need to treat us this well. You can't exploit us, this is what you pay us or you lose your contract with the retailer due to consumer pressure. Um, you know, so these legally binding agreements, that's a model to follow, like corporate social responsibility, fair trade, you know, this, this sort of multi-stakeholder mumbo jumbo, it's all garbage, doesn't work. People still suffer. Animals are still dying by the billions. Mm-hmm. Planet's going to shit. Climate change is here, right? So these are things that are happening that need to be built upon that we need, we need more, more pressure on. And so it's not like when I look at these companies, you know, am I sending them love letters or like, congratulations? It's like, to me, it's like, do the right thing or you don't deserve to be in business. And, you know, frankly, I mean, there's a lot of those companies that I don't think really need to be in business anymore. And I think we need a whole host of other types of enterprise, which is why like, I, I do talk about public sector, but I'm also very supportive of worker ownership, employee ownership models. Uh, stakeholder trusts, alternate financing, alternate, um, you know, uh, business and governance models that empower 
employees that create more democracy and transparency um, in these enterprises. And I think that's types of ideas and models that plant-based food folks should uh, embrace as opposed to licking the boots of Bill Gates. You know, the people who are working on these solutions and having met several of them and know them, they strongly believe in their ideas. They, they believe that the path that they're on is going to lead to significant change and it's going to happen fairly quickly. We're going to reach peak meat and suddenly we're going to shift to... Remember peak oil? Of course I do. <laughs> uh, Why are we even calling it peak meat? I'm just saying, just like remember peak oil. I know like, we should have learned from that, right? So I <laughs> sometimes yeah, I I wonder where the some of the naive optimism, or maybe it's just it's just that's what you need to say to get more people to give you money. But um, yeah. they strongly believe in in those ideas, and and I and I think there is some truth to it. Right, they're not completely wrong. It's going to make some difference. Let's some. It's and I'm. I strongly believe plant-based foods, if done right, with the right business models, with the right uh, products, using the right ingredients, can be is what people want. And let's not discount. And you started off this whole conversation with. It's let's obvious not, that it's growing. Yeah. Yeah. There's let's no, not discount the consumer that. consumer demand. Right. Consumers yeah, have what power. What they're buying are the calafias and the beyond meats. They're buying the natural product stuff that we brought to market in the last 10 years. They're not buying cell-based ag. And there's only a couple of these more GMO-based products that they're actually buying. But the vast majority of what we call plant-based, yeah. still, it's still highly processed, but still came out of the natural product sector, to be frank. Yeah. And I also find like some people, I've, I've seen articles written on, one of them was on Forbes, I believe, recently, which was uh, about how plant-based meat companies should not try to make their products more healthier because- the idea is to just... Uh, that, is that the uh, fuck off and die uh, section of the uh, plant-based <laughs> movement? Like, what is that? Yeah, I, and I, I, I kind of like, lost my... Bother? Yeah, I, 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 and I was like, if you can do it without necessarily compromising... And the whole argument was flawed. It was that you would compromise on sales and adding more salt was the solution. Yeah, obviously somebody who has zero retail experience so therefore discount them... <laughs> Like, you know, let me, I have 50,000 hours of retail merchandise. I think I need you to connect. I need to, con I know the person who wrote it. I can connect you with him and maybe you can school. Time here. Okay. So, but, you know, I, I read stuff like that and I'm like, you guys actually don't even know how the food industry works pretty obviously because no, no one's going to make a decision that doesn't make you money, firstly. And why would you say that the right thing being done by a company like Beyond Meat to try to reduce the sodium and uh, fat content would be a bad choice if they can do it without compromising on taste. And I obviously clarified that with Seth Goldman when I had him on the podcast. And he said, yeah, nice. of course, why can't yeah. we do that? If you we, if we can make it better, we are going to continuously improve on, on meat. Now, but there are some of the movement are just so, so, you know, myopically focused on the goal of let's... Uh, People don't know what they want, right? The classic tech thing. I don't know. Maybe Steve Jobs said it, or it's been attributed to him. Like uh, consumers don't know what they want till you give it to them. And maybe that applies to the iPhone, but I don't think it applies to uh, giving them products that are made with with uh, without any regard to the farming system. Well, I mean, that we if you want to create products 
in a way that it sounds like you hate consumers that, you know, you want to kill them off quicker, you know, it was like, was this voluntary human extinction? You know, that used to be a thing in the nineties, you know, <laughs> yeah. what is that even about? It's like, of course we need to think about the health and nutrient density and, and it's you know, the food. Way stuff was <laughs> and the care. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, we needed to survive, which is why I have so many critiques, not just about plant-based, but also like hydroponics. It's like, you know, what's the nutrient density? What's, you know, what's the bricks content? And, you know, we see all this investment going to vertical farms and it's the same question. It's like, what's in the nutrient broth? <laughs> what are you growing that stuff on? And therefore what the nutrient density of the products are, right? Um, no, we need to make products that people can thrive with, you know? And, you know, we need to not, you know, we need not say that in one sentence saying, oh, we don't need healthy products. And then on the other hand, in, in the other sentence saying, it's people's fault that they're fat. You know, we start fat shaming people and, and crying about the obesity epidemic. And it's like, you're both missing the point here. You know, we, as food entrepreneurs, you know, as food businesses, let's do our best to create a better food system. Let's create products that are healthier, better tasting, you know, that are wellness oriented, that are, they're, they're made with kindness. They're made with, with, you know, good intentions. I think that's a big part of it. Like that energy, that spirit, even of, you know, what you're intending to do. Um, you know, and even if it's ice cream, you know, <laughs> plant-based ice cream, yeah, everybody, you know, not, likes a little Natamu now and then, you know, or, or whatever that, you know, brand that you, you know, it's not health food, but you know, there, there is, to me, there's a kindness associated with it and the care with which they, 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 uh, you know, develop their supply chains and, and, you know, bring their product to market. And what I'm saying is we need more of that mm. and we need to think of it in terms of solidarity and we need to think in terms of, of food sovereignty. We, we need to go further. Um, not the other way, because what, what you're saying with these folks who are saying, ah, oh, beyond me thinking it's got to be healthier, they're wanting to go back the other way. They're wanting to, to run towards the side of the tent with Smithfield and JBS and Tyson mm. and 3G and Warren Buffett, you know, and Bill Gates and Monsanto and Bayer, you know, and, and say, and, and that's, that's the boots that they're trying to lick, right? Yeah. And what I'm saying is, no, it's obvious what customers actually want if you read the data. See, I, I'm not somebody who reads marketing studies. I'm, I'm not of that, you know, I'm, I say, I love the iPhone. I'm talking to you in my, my uh, MacBook. I love Steve Jobs, what he did, what he actually says. Eh, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I like to watch what customers do. I'm a retail merchant. I'm an operator. I've survived and, you know, I had a livelihood because my team responded to what customers were doing, what they bought, where they were showing up, right? And that's why I think a lot of that activity is, is a big part of what I call the demand side of, of um, you know, purchasing, uh, merchandising uh, reform. It's like you're helping spur this demand by fulfilling, you know, what folks are doing. And that's why I, I talk a lot about, um, you know, like good food purchasing, like the power of the PO, right? But I think for, for these brands who are like, you want to show up for consumers, you want to be plant-based, you know. To have you know the, the set of ethics you know and think about the the broader community that you're trying to create. Think about you know the notion of seven generations. You know the uh, um, Haudenosaunee saying of you know not thinking about the present moment, uh, but thinking you know one, two, three, four, five, six, seven generations down the line what you're trying to do, as opposed to saying to yourself every day, "I'm here to flip this and cash out three to five years," right? Good for you. Best of luck with that. <laughs> Hasn't worked out for the vast majority. I mean, there's a few, you know, maybe you could be the next RX bar, you know, but try not to kill anybody with your food safety issues. And oh, by the way, once Kellogg's buys you, they're going to lay off hundred percent of your employees. So see how that's worked out. 
Yeah, and then tomorrow yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. it's going to happen with the, the the meat companies, right? And I think a lot of people are celebrating. Well, their... the meat companies, we need mm-hmm. to regulate them. Mm-hmm. So me and you and all our plant-based army here, it's not us. Those fuckers need to be regulated. They need to be broken up, all right? It's very simple. There should not be these large-scale meat monopolies. JBS is like literally a Brazilian crime family. Like they should not be running most of the beef uh, market here, you know, Smithfield, uh, Tyson has like regulatory and like political party capture Democrats and Republicans. They mm-hmm. are so slick. The Clintons came out of the Tyson, uh, world, you know, it's Arkansas, right? We, you know, all these big companies need to be regulated and broken up in big meat. Okay. It's very simple. And anybody who's in plant-based world should be behind that unless they're thinking that for some reason, Tyson is going to want to buy their IP and scale their company, which they may, but most likely, you know, most likely what they're going to do is keep selling lots of chicken uh, processed by exploited uh, immigrant workers in their, in their supply chain. So, so just think about it that way. You know, yeah. that's a good way to show solidarity with the folks who are out there, like literally suffering and dying every day to scale up this meat demand. You know, and I think there's another, there's another argument of, you know, maybe we need, do we need to decentralize meat processing? Should we have these large scale plants? You know, not to mention the fact that the line speeds, which are a harbinger of cruelty, the, you know, the, the rap, the rapidity of these line speeds, which, you know, a, a judge recently struck down Trump's rapid, rapiding, uh, um, you know, speeding up of the lines. Like there's all these ways that plant-based folks should also work to reform the current system outside of just the certification model. And I help rolled out global animal partnership. I help roll out, mm-hmm. you know, you know, these, the, those five step standards and get, you know, suppliers on board. So I have a good idea of what you can do from the certification level, still market-based and it's grown, but it's not enough, especially to the uh, sense of urgency and the time frame which, which you're talking about. It needs to be activity outside of the marketplace and certification. We, we need to go after these folks and we need to leverage, you know, everything within our power um, to, to, you know, break them up, shut them down and create, you know, you know, new system for if there is animal agriculture, which I do believe there, there is going to be a demand for. So you have to figure that out, mm. what it looks like and how to scale, scale it. So there's some level of humane production but also the fact that you don't have these massive feedlots that are, you know, these concentration camps for animals like that, we, we need to get rid of that. And I think once again, going back to agroecology, there's a lot of, a lot of ways that we can think about agriculture and how to grow food um, and integrating, you know, uh, plants and animals, you know, into ecosystems and, you know, helping these ecosystems, you know, imagine if Iowa as a state were to adopt an agroecological model as opposed to a corn monoculture model and thinking about the number of rivers in Iowa and the waterways and the soil and the types of practices you could do. And the vast majority of what you would still produce would be plant-based, right? And so just, just thinking about things a little differently um, and starting to work with folks who are, who are on the ground trying to do that as opposed to you know, you're craning your neck, trying to look up at, at all the VCs, you know, hoping to get their attention with your great ideas. Your ideas are great, folks. Keep working at it. We love the creativity. We love that you're trying to save the world, that you're trying to fix the food system. And these are some other things that you should consider. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping folks understand. Just to respond to the points that you're bringing up about big meat and uh, and what needs to happen to truly transform 
the way they do business. Let's be clear, the answer cannot be to firstly wish and hope that they're going to suddenly, <laughs> uh, you know, turn a corner and decide that they're going to shut down all their factories uh, and, and switch to plan base. And this is all going to happen in the next 10, 20 years. Uh, and neither is the answer. You work with them to create, as you may have heard, blended products that mix plant-based with meat and kind of who past eats that no seriously who eats? i don't, I don't think like anyone buys a that of items that i've seen that are like oh that's cool but if like really folks <laughs> <laughs> but 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 the people who are working on those things uh i probably shouldn't say this which is why i'm actually going to say it um the people working on those things actually think they're saving animals by reducing uh the amount of meat per patty, while it doesn't actually take an, and I've only, I've asked a simple yeah, but, question: Does it know, take another in, skew off? And the answer is no. You, I grew up in public school, and I'm pretty sure that they cut most of those hamburgers with soy. <laughs> so that's existed for years. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we were on a partially plant-based diet because we were poor. Okay, so I, I don't know about that. Like I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd have a hard time quote digesting that <laughs> if I were a retail buyer. Um, like, I'm not sure if that would be the direction I would take a category. Yeah. So to me, there's this, these things that, and it, it kind of dilutes the good work that many companies and brands are doing. And I know we mentioned Miyoko's and Good Catch and even Beyond Meat for that matter. And, you know, Follow Your Heart has been doing for years to Furky. Um, Field Roast. Field Roast. Yeah. I mean, these companies have been... Uh, let, let me give a shout out to the biggest segment, which is, you know, some of the plant-based milks. I mean, Ripple, mm-hmm. um, you know, Calafia, Calafia. Rest Greg Steltonpole, longtime friend of mine. Um, you know, even old school stuff like like Silk, um, you know, they do instill a lot of organic sourcing. And if it's not organic, it's non-GMO. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's interesting. I mean, there's issues with almonds, you know, if you, especially if you read Perilous mm-hmm. Bounty, but like, it's very interesting that a lot of that energy and plant-based has not just been meat, but it's been in the beverages. And there's been a concurrent decline in, in liquid uh, dairy and milk. Yeah. Hasn't affected cheese. Cheese is still on the upswing, but in terms of that's where, that's the only category. It looks like there may be some replacement. Like folks are, they're drinking less milk and they're, they're reaching for more of the plant-based stuff too. But I don't want to get into, I was on the board of a family-based dairy processor for a long time and there's so many other issues with dairy that we could talk about that I won't go into. Yeah, I, just one quick note on that. If that's an example of uh, that category, so now now plant based dairy makes up fifteen percent of of liquid dairy sales, uh, liquid milk that's sales, uh, which is huge. And like you mentioned, it still hasn't reduced dairy production in any way, right? And that's well, partly it's it's, milk consumption, but but it shifted to cheese now, and we, and partly that's again you go back to subsidies, and economics issues. Yep. Well, it's more than subsidies; it's 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 asset appreciation. It's mm. farmers owning farmland and what they choose to do with their property, and then their own habits of like they don't want to get out of a certain sector. And look, you know, if the the pay price of milk goes down, their production goes up. And so part part of this is that. You know, not only do we not have a, um, a um, supply chain model where there's a price parity for the, the pay price, um, but there's no way to control the actual increase in production for farmers. Uh, their margin goes down, their production goes up. It's like any business, right? Um, and so that, that creates an oversupply. And that's you know, where you've also had all these, you know, I've had a lot of bankruptcies too. Obviously, Vermont, Wisconsin hit hard. And then don't get me started about the vertical integration of dairy too. You have mm-hmm. companies like Walmart and Kroger who are vertically integrating to factory farms. 
or HEB factory farms for dairy too. So there's a lot to that. And I don't want to get, you know, the loss of the forest of the trees, but the plant-based dairy segment, um, has, I think has been successful. I think it's, it's done some interesting things. There's a, a nice variety of products. You have more premium items like, um, uh, you know, um, what do you call it? Forager uh, or, um, was it Red Barn? I think New Barn, um, New Barn, New Barn, um, Ted Rob, and, um, you know, other sort of premium products, Malk, Malk's mm-hmm. a great product, right? In addition to the more mass market stuff. And then you know, old school stuff like Blue Diamond, right? So wide variety. I don't think there's a lot of space for a lot of innovation in it. Um, it's good to see that folks have moved from almond to coconut to cashew to pea and legume. Um, so there's, there's a nice variety of alternate crops. Once again, like, you know, tree crops and agroforestry methods, agroecology. I mean, you know, I mean, you if you were to stop being so dependent on commodity almond in California and look at legumes or alternate tree crops, there's probably markets that you could find for, for more uh, tree and nut and legume crops that are grown agroecologically in the plant-based dairy segment. See, I'm trying to put it all together mm-hmm. here. So that but you, you missed, you missed a big one. Uh, what about oats and oatly? Oats is oatly, right? Yeah. What, I mean, what are your thoughts on them? I think oats is actually, to your point, um, mm-hmm. and Oatly annoys me because I know they do organic in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I think they've taken Blackstone money and they've taken all that big private equity. Um, actually, in, in some ways, oats is probably the most ecological of those crops because um, mm-hmm. oats are a great rotational crop. Um, you know, they stabilize the soil. They, they can be grown now without glyphosate, you know, and other desiccants. Um, so a lot of oats used to be, you know, desiccated before harvest and now they're not. So, you know, you're right. I think, I think that was an oversight on my end. Um, and Oatly, I think, has is, is shown a lot of promise. And there's a couple other oat products that are, are doing pretty well, too. But it's still an upstart, you know. So, like, these other products are all pretty established. That being said, like, I really do think oats have the potential to be the most ecological of the uh, plant-based uh, um, dairy alternatives. So it's a good point. And the fact that Oatly has a, has a unique formula, it's enzyme process. So the mouthfeel is similar to dairy. You know, it's probably the closest to like, like coconut milk gets pretty close without the coconutty taste. So now they've done some amazing things. I was over in Europe a couple of years ago and it was everywhere. And also, like I said, like they sell a lot more of it organic out there. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Oh, I see, like, this is a thing. And they've, they're one of the few companies that has figured out how to how to capture that that same sort of energy here in the U.S. and I do love their ads, their their kitchen. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, I was selling oat, you know, oat drink, oat milk. Like Pacific Foods had it. We 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 did look at Oatly briefly before I left Whole Foods uh, in 2015, and we had a couple other oat, oat milk brands. So it's been around for a while, and they've definitely done the best job on it. Yeah, I yeah, I could go down a rabbit hole of oats because um, another thing people are talking about is getting the dairy farmers to transition into growing oats and I I don't know from what I've read and heard I don't know if the economics add up there they can make that much money doing that so that's those are the kind of questions you have to ask though (laughs) most most farmers make their living off of off-farm income and the farming in its of itself a lot of farmers it's for asset appreciation it's to hold on to the land and they're making more money just by the land values going up. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, a lot of dairy farmers in the Northeast and upper Midwest are smaller farms under 200, 250 acres and whether or not they could actually transition their pasture to grain. And you're saying that would be a better ecological benefit. I'm not sure about that. 
because you'd be disrupting the soil. You'd have to figure out ways to um, grow grains, um, you know, without plowing, um, you know, which is, is possible. You know, Jeff Moyer from Rodale's written a book about that sort of thing. Um, and then the other problem with that is a lot of dairy just comes from large scale factory farms. Like I was mentioning, large scale retailers have vertically integrated their dairy processing and their supply chains to source from one or two massive CAFO operations, as opposed to a few years ago, they were sourcing from hundreds or even thousands of smaller scale family farms. So if you're going to imagine why milk is so damn cheap, it's because they've consolidated those supply chains. So I think there's a lot there. Um, and the, you know, I do agree we need to think about transitioning. Um, and this is what part of a just transition for farmers and farmland in terms of, you know, that a lot of them aren't able to produce milk now because there's just not as much demand for it. Mm-hmm. And they have to do other things or they're overproducing it and it's going into commodity cheese or, or who knows there, you know, they're just getting raked over the coals by their co-op. So I do think there's a lot to unpack there, but we have to keep in mind that a lot of the disruption in the dairy industry has been from other dairy and the consolidation, vertical integration um, in dairy, as opposed to just blaming the vegans. Yeah. And that was something that... We're well, giving credit the dairy, to the vegans, right? <laughs> well, well, I mean, these people want to, you know, they, they want, they, you know, they, there's all these lawsuits in these last few years that they don't want to allow plant-based beverages to be called milk yeah. because it's not from a, it's not from the udder of a cow. <laughs> we yeah well okay we'll have we'll need another podcast for that one but um <laughs> you've been very generous with your time today and i i'm gonna close this out with uh one final question uh, that i close out every podcast with which is um uh, and i kind of alluded to this idea that we are kind of in a race against time we have maybe a few decades uh to get our act together and maybe maybe and i say maybe because maybe it's already too late um but we ought to try with the time we have. Um, that's what I believe, at least. Um, so what if he, what if all the, uh, the good ideas that you have about what the food system really needs comes to fruition? What if we are able to build a food system that's more equitable, equitable sustainable, and healthy? Can you kind of tell us what your vision for that food system will be in the year 2050, if you get it right and if, if you do all these things? I'll be uh, about 75 years old. I'm going to see that, right? You know, I think we got to be very careful about sense of urgency mm-hmm. um, because I think it's a loaded question to say we've got so many years until so-and-so happens. And it's like, well, that shit is happening. Not to us though, okay? You know, it, it, it's happening to folks in the supply chain. It's happening to, you know, migrants. You know, why are all these people fleeing, you know, Central America, you know, a lot of it's climate related. I mean, this is happening. That's why there's all these kids at the border, you know, not to mention the fact that there's, you know, all these uh, foreign policy issues with U.S. Uh, interfering in, you know, foreign governments like in Honduras and Guatemala, et cetera. I mean, then there's the drug trade, which, you know, on the demand side, it's all about the U.S., you know, who's buying the fentanyl and the Coke? It's people in America. So, you know, it is happening. And so for us to say we have so many years, I think, is a false preposition because we need to do things right. We need to do things democratically and inclusively. I think a lot of what happens with this sort of sense of urgency and this timeline, this countdown, it it means that that sort of uh, democratic decision making and um, you know transparency gets sublimated, and we we start licking boots 
for Bill Gates and other big, big dollar donors. And we start thinking we need um, to create authoritarian uh, government policies to restrict civil liberties. And we need to restrict people's individual behaviors. And I'm, I'm coming from the other end. We need to restrict and hyper-regulate these big businesses and leave personal freedom for, for me, people like me and you and for, for other folks, uh, humans. Um, but you know, big business needs to be smacked down. Uh, big meat companies need to be regulated and broken up. Um, we need to create more of an agroecological process around uh, food production, processing, distribution, we call it retail, uh, wholesale, and you know, food service or hospitality. Uh, we need to create fairness in supply chains and equity for food system workers. We need to treat them as people. We need to um, give them all the same rights and freedoms that the rest of us have. Most farm workers are exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, except for in California and New York, where they're slowly reforming that. Um, you know, we, we obviously need to look at immigration in terms of path to citizenship. 75% of the food we eat in this country is touched by migrant workers, grown, harvested, picked, processed. You know, we need, we need that kind of fairness throughout the supply chain. Um, you know, in terms of plant-based, of course, I want to see a greater percentage of food plant-based. I, I believe that food should be minimally processed. We need more whole food nutrition. I don't believe in just hyper-localism. Um, especially living in a place like Texas, where you can only grow okra and hot peppers two months, three months of the year, you need to bring in food from elsewhere. Um, and obviously, for those folks who live up north, you know, um, I would definitely want us to see see uh, more indoor growing. Um, you know, but all within the sort of agroecological food sovereignty mindset. And um, one of the th- one of the things that I've really liked is uh, New York's food system plan. I wrote an article for mm-hmm. Forbes about it you know, the type of framework around good food purchasing they're putting in for uh, public food sector contracts. So um, I think over a dozen cities have adopted this sort of good food purchasing model. To me, that points the way forward. That's a really good start. It's, you know, you've got folks who are retail savvy like me involved, but you also have communities, you've had unions, uh, you've had, you know, teachers and education uh, folks involved with developing that sort of stuff. And yeah, of course, there's a big focus on plant-based and and whole food nutrition, um, you know, and animal welfare. I mean, that's super important. So, I mean, the, these things are all sort of building right now. And I think, um, you know, listen, listen to the checkout podcast. We're always going to have lots of guests talking about this sort of stuff. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be continuing to write and blog about it. Uh, you know, follow me on social media, Instagram, grocery nerd, uh, Twitter, grocery nerd. Um, and, you know, check out some, some really cool writings out there. Like I, I love some of the analysis Julie Guffman has done in recent years on the food system. Raj Patel is always amazing. Eric Holt Jimenez, um, is, is always amazing. Um, Amy Breeze Harper, um, um, Ashante Reese, Naya Jones, um, you know, sort of get out of your comfort zone. Stop just reading Peter Singer and the latest, uh, you know, vegan cookbook from Alicia Silverstone or whatever, you know, sort of branch out of it. Um, I love Brian Terry. Um, he's coming out with a new book. Um, uh, may already be out, um, et cetera. There, there's a lot. And check out Dick Gregory. I want to bring it back to the OG. Uh, one of the people who, you know, inspired me in, in my food food journey, you know, 26, 27 years ago, rest in, rest in peace, Dick, Gre- Dick Gregory. He's also one of the funniest humans to ever live. So, um, so yeah, 2050 from, from now on, I would just hope for a, um, more democratic 
transparency uh, in the food system around the principles of food sovereignty as outlined by uh, Livia Campesina's uh, 1996 declaration. Um, and I want folks to understand more closely what agroecology means and how we can move beyond this sort of certification soup. You know, like every product looks like a NASCAR label these days because they're trying to do all the certification. And what we really need is an umbrella uh, process and movement around all that, which is what I think agroecology uh, really uh, really stands for. And that's, that's where a lot of my interest is these days. So those are some ideas. Errol, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you being on the Eat for the Planet podcast. I encourage all the listeners to go check out the Checkout podcast hosted by Errol Schweitzer. Uh, highly recommended. If you found this interesting, there's a lot more out there in, in his podcast and the episodes that he's put out so far with many more to come. So thank you, Errol. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.